This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Here we are 20 years after Columbine, and the attention was supposed to be on those who lost their lives and on those whose lives were changed forever. Instead, a young woman, apparently obsessed with the shootings, came to Colorado, forced schools to close, then took her own life. It has made a tough anniversary tougher. We're going to reflect on this with Tom Ulbrich. He's director of emergency services at the Jefferson Center. It's a mental health agency. And he was there 20 years ago as the Columbine community searched for support. And Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you for this opportunity. Can you give me a sense of what you've heard from people in your community over the last 48 hours, an example perhaps of a conversation you've had? Absolutely. The most interesting thing is how, and and this is true for all of us, how very conflicting feelings can exist simultaneously. Uh, Currently, there's a great sense of relief that the young woman is no longer posing a threat but there continues to be a level of anxiety and apprehension that maybe something more might happen and a a question about how safe are we really. So there's still a lot of anxiety within our community, and this young woman's actions just brought that to the surface. Yeah, and that anxiety certainly is not unfounded. We've been reporting that this time of year, Columbine sees an uptick in threats, Uh, It has been part of its reality since the massacre. And we heard from a pastor in Littleton, in fact, who conveyed the story of a Columbine survivor who was particularly struck by the heavy police presence Wednesday at Clement Park near the school. Um, Have you heard of or experienced particular triggers? Yes, um, there were some scenes on television of people leaving the school at the end of the school day, and they were overhead pictures Uh, taken, I presume, by a helicopter, and it brought back all the images of the students evacuating the school 20 years ago. So the helicopter and the pictures were triggering for a lot of our citizens. Tom, it's interesting. You're not alone in this. 50 of your colleagues, do I have that right, at the center, were also there 20 years ago? I I wonder what this week has been like for you and for them. It has That is correct. It's in the upper 40s, the number of people who work here who were here 20 years ago. And it's been a very somber week for all of us. Um, The predominant feeling prior to this incident on Monday was one of just sadness as we remember the 12 students and teacher Dave Sanders who lost their lives 20 years ago. And we remember the impact as we first heard about what was going on because it was beyond the scope of anything we had ever dealt with or prepared for. Um, So we have gone back in time, and those memories have come back to the surface. I wonder if at the Jefferson Center you've maintained relationships with people over those 20 years who've continued perhaps to seek support, to seek help. We have been available to the community uh, and people who need support the past 20 years. We aren't seeing as many people currently coming forward as did even 10 years ago, but mm. there's still people who do come in from time to time and are needing to decompress from those experiences 20 years ago. This was such a visible event this week uh, in which a young woman died by suicide. Do you worry about something of a contagion effect? I mean, that publicity around a suicide is linked to an increase in suicide. Yeah, unfortunately, I do, um, and I hope that I'm I'm wrong, but I'm concerned that um, 
the media attention she got and and the power she was able to exercise through her threats to disrupt the entire metro community may embolden others who have these kinds of thoughts to move into action. So I am, I'm not predicting that will happen, but I am a more apprehensive that we may see some copycat. I struggle with this too as a journalist. I think that this has been part of the conversation since. Is there anything to do about it? Well, I think there are a couple of things that really stand out that we that are important to remember. As frightening and upsetting as the events of uh, this week have been, the work of our FBI, law enforcement agencies, school security staff, and the community at large, we've learned a lot in 20 years, and we were able to prevent this woman from completing her plan, and that's really important. And the schools took appropriate actions, the community took appropriate actions to ensure everyone's safety. So while there's certainly a concern that something more could happen, we also have some reassurance that we were able to act as a community to prevent this woman from completing her plan. In just the last few moments we have, um, if there is someone listening uh, who thinks that a friend or a family member is struggling, perhaps, with the idea of suicide, or if there's someone listening who's experiencing that themselves, what do you suggest they do? I suggest they don't isolate, that they spend time with people they feel safe with, um, that they have the opportunity to talk, they not be pressured to talk, but the opportunity to talk about how they're feeling. But sometimes just having people who care about you sit with you can be very reassuring. And then if people need to uh, get some professional help, they can call the Colorado Crisis and Support Line at 1-844-493-8255. And the good thing about that line is it's answered 24 hours a day by therapists, so they don't have to wait for a call back. They call in, they reach somebody directly with whom they can speak confidentially about what they're feeling. Give that number one more time before we go. Yes, it's 1-844-493-8255. And those last letters spell talk, maybe a little easier that to is remember. Correct. Tom, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it and, and the long view. You're very welcome. Tom Ulbrich is Director of Emergency Services at the Jefferson Center, a mental health agency that serves the Columbine community and beyond. And uh, he spoke to us at the 20th anniversary of the Columbine shootings. Parents across Metro Denver have been helping their children navigate these intense few days, even as they struggle with it themselves. Here's how some families have wrestled with the threat of violence. This time I'm... (sighs) I'm I'm waiting a little later in the day to let them know why we're because they're you know they've just they've they've had enough honesty. <laughs> this is just stuff that I think all of us teachers and parents are thinking about. I remember hearing an interview with a Columbine survivor who was talking about dropping her child off and what that was like and while we haven't had that kind of direct trauma. Um, I think there is a collective trauma of dropping your child off and hoping that everything's going to be okay. The kids that I have at home are all able to understand that they're safe on what I call a cognitive level, or in their brain, they know that they, they know and believe that they say the words, we're safe. They know that that's true. 
But at an emotional level, it's sometimes harder for them to understand that. And so even though their brains know that it's that they're safe, I think there's still an emotional part of them that's reacting as if, oh, as if I'm worried that something might happen to me. And so they might be more likely to stay close to us. So that's just one of the things that I'm observing. But some of the things that I'm saying is, is, you know, to them is, is being very frank. So talking about today's incident, I would say that there is um, a woman who made very specific threats that people were worried that she was going to hurt some kids at schools. We didn't know what schools, but we did know that she was in Colorado. And so to be safe, um, they closed the schools. With my seven-year-old, he um, has uh, a lot of curiosity and um, he does a lot of sort of digesting internally on his own and then he comes back. And so um, I I think it's important to uh, make sure he's aware Um, And I try not to let him get too scared. I've been very careful about the language that we use to discuss these things with him. But yeah, so today I just didn't have the heart to have a conversation with my son. Um, So, you know, I spoke with a nanny about what she should do with the kids today. And she said, should I, should we just stay in the house? Like, or can I take them out? And I said, yeah, but let's, you know, let's not take them to the children's museum. Let's not take them to the zoo. Nowhere that might be crowded and a target. So that was Ashley Renz, Amanda Clark, David Hulak, and Charmaine Rose, parents in Metro Denver, reflecting on how threats of violence have touched their families. Meanwhile, investigators say they'll continue to look into the woman behind the threat. They don't believe she had help. The young woman killed herself and became, uh, after becoming the subject of a massive manhunt, a key question is whether she legally purchased a shotgun upon her arrival in Colorado. CPR's Ben Marcus has been digging into this. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me again. So first, let's walk through how this woman got here and how she got a gun. So she flew from Florida to here uh, from the Miami area and apparently on the same day went to a gun store called Colorado Gun Broker. Uh, It's just about two miles from Columbine High School. Uh, And in Colorado, there is no waiting period on a gun purchase. Background checks, according to the state's database, clear in about an average of eight minutes. So um, sometime after the background check, check cleared, she was out of the store with the gun. So she buys this gun, and the big question is, was the purchase legal? So the authorities at the state level and the federal level tell us they insist that it was legal. Under Colorado law, an 18-year-old can buy a shotgun. Uh, This woman was 18. Handguns, you have to be 21 or older. And again, if you pass that background check, you're allowed to buy the gun. The gun store owner posted on Facebook that he believes the purchase was fully legal as well. So the question here, though, is the federal law. And in the federal law, it says that if somebody comes from out of state, that purchase must conform to both states' gun laws. So both the laws of the state you're buying in, Colorado, and the laws of the state she came from, Florida. And there are reasons to believe that this purchase didn't conform to Florida's laws. Yeah, explain that. What about Florida law would make that true? 
Right. So call, so Florida has two provisions that seem to apply here that would have prevented the purchase on Monday. Uh, first, there's a age requirement in Florida for all firearms, both shotguns, handguns, rifles. Uh, that's 21 and older. This woman was 18 again. Uh, Florida also has a three-day wait period or whenever the background check clears, whichever is longer. So at least three days to wait. And neither of those seem to be followed in this case. Okay. So just to be very clear, there's a difference a contrast between Colorado's gun laws and Florida's with that age requirement and the wait period. So what do authorities say about that? So we put this question to them again, and they still say that the purchase was fully legal, but they can't tell us why. They can't square this inconsistency. Now, ATF says there is some provision in Florida's gun law that makes it so it doesn't apply to Colorado purchases, but they wouldn't elaborate. Uh, and we couldn't find that provision ourselves. and we talked to gun experts. They couldn't find the provision. Uh, it may exist in Florida statute. I'm not an expert in that, but I did read it pretty thoroughly and couldn't find it. Um, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation also could explain uh, this inconsistency. But again, they said that the gun laws, according to their research, have been obeyed. But you're not able to square why that's true. What do gun store owners say? What's their take? So this is interesting. I talked to one gun store and he was like, look, I would avoid all out-of-state purchases because it's just too confusing to try to follow another state's laws. He did say there is this service you can pay for that kind of helps you out with that. And he also said that sometimes he will allow out-of-state purchases if it's neighboring states because they have somewhat similar laws to Colorado and he's more familiar with them. When you say there's a service he can hire, that is, there's probably a lot of paperwork and understanding that any gun store would have to have of other states' laws. That's right. Okay. And ATF's website didn't even have Florida's new changes on it uh, as of yesterday. So if you were looking that up, it wouldn't be immediately apparent to you. Uh, this has sparked some discussion at the state capitol, I understand, Ben. Right. Our own Ben to Berkeley at the Capitol reported that uh, Patrick Neville, a prominent Republican, said he felt like there should be more security in schools and, again, should consider arming staff members. Tom Sullivan, a Democrat gun control advocate, says that there's talk at the Capitol of some kind of purchasing delay similar to what Florida and California and other states have. OK, so this story is still developing. Thanks for following it, Ben. Thank you. CPR's Ben Marcus on the shotgun at the center of this week's threat which shut down schools across Metro Denver. In the 20 years since Columbine, it's clear the high school has become a magnet for people who don't always have the best of intentions. CPR's Nathaniel Minor reports on how administrators work to keep the school and the community safe. Frank DeAngelis was principal of Columbine High School during the attack in 1999 and for more than a decade afterward. He became something of an expert on how school leaders respond to shootings. So it wasn't a surprise in December 2011 when a high schooler from Utah called. He said he was the editor of the student paper and wanted to schedule an interview. He came in and said that his family was here on vacation and had no reason to doubt that. He came in very well First, uh, very articulate. DeAngelis was impressed by the students' questions. It was all about recovery, and he said, boy, I see how you created this wonderful environment. How were you able to do that? And questions were very appropriate. The interview wrapped up, and the student went back to Utah. 
few days later, I get a call from the Utah police saying, was this kid there? I said, yeah. And I said, why? And he said, well, he had a plot to blow up this school. The student turned out to be obsessed with Columbine and was planning an attack at his own school before police caught him. He's just one of many people who are so fascinated with Columbine, they've called DeAngelis, or some have even come to the school to see it in person. Buses full of tourists have occasionally pulled up on school days ever since the massacre happened. This is Since Columbine, a podcast about how one shooting changed America. In this episode, we're zooming in on Columbine High School itself, how administrators keep it safe and what it means to the families of those who died there. It's a story that's especially relevant now, As the anniversary of the attack approaches on Saturday, someone obsessed with Columbine posed a credible enough threat that school districts across the metro area shut down earlier this week. John McDonald is the head of security for Jefferson County Schools. He's responsible for keeping some 85,000 students safe at more than 150 different schools. But he says it's Columbine that's the biggest challenge. There's people that want to feel it, touch it, see it, experience it. Like they want to touch the lockers. And those are the people that we have to say no to, that there's a memorial. And we'd love for you to visit the memorial, but not our school. If strangers show up to the school these days, McDonald says his team can usually stop them before they even get out of their car. It's expensive. It it certainly costs more than uh, any other school in the district to maintain the level of security that we we need to here. Uh, Probably by a factor of five times, six times more. McDonald says he's even wondered if the school should have been torn down. That's what happened with Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Former Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis has thought about that too. But two decades ago, the community decided to keep most of Columbine intact. And DeAngelis says at that time, there was no way to anticipate the symbol that this school building would become. I mean, if we could look ahead, say in 20 years, this is what's going to be happening, I think we probably would have said we probably needed to relocate. A few weeks ago, the school district invited reporters to meet some of the families of survivors in the place where it happened. Dozens of family members decided not to participate. But the ones who were there talked about why they still visit the school. Like Daryl Scott, the father of Rachel Scott, the first person killed in the attack. He says he and his wife come to the school every year to leave a rose on the spot she was killed. This building, for me, is a sacred place. Even though it was a place of horror and tragedy, it's always been a sacred place knowing that the lives of precious people were taken. And so our focus has always been on them and not the shooters. Rick Townsend's daughter, Lauren Townsend, was killed too. I think this is uh, a school with a a lot of vitality uh, and a centerpiece of this community. The family sat briefly with each reporter, circulating through the library. That's the one part of the school that was torn down and rebuilt, since it's where most of the shooting happened. Connie Sanders' father, Dave, was killed right outside the old library. He was a teacher at Columbine, and every year on April 20th, she visits the spot where he died. It's marked by a Columbine flower in the floor. 
And last year, I showed up, and there were a bunch of kids sitting on the flower. And they were doing a community service project. And at first, I was like, get off my flower. <laughs> like, that's mine. That's... And, and then I realized, like, this is what it's all about. This is what he would have wanted. Sanders says her dad dedicated himself to making his community a better place. And it makes her happy knowing that kids come there to do the same thing. And I just imagine that my dad was kind of, you know, there with all those students as they're doing their community service project on my flower. I've asked a lot of people in the Columbine community over the last few months what this anniversary means to them. Some people say it's just a number, doesn't mean much. Others worry that as this milestone passes, people will start to forget about the victims and the survivors. Still others say that for too long, Columbine has only been associated with violence. Well, it's much more than that. It's a school, like any other, where students worry about who they're going to take to prom, or their Spanish test, or what they're going to do after they graduate. Connie Sanders told me something at Columbine last month that I've been thinking about a lot. After her father was killed, she became an activist for gun control. Lately, though, she's felt like this anniversary is the end of a distinct period of time in her life. I really felt that way after Parkland, that we were handing the baton off to a younger generation and saying, we're tired. We just want to be the Columbine community. We want to go back to being the state, the flower, the school. That's what we want. CPR's Nathaniel Minor with the latest episode of Since Columbine, the series and podcast about how the attack 20 years ago changed America. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. So on Saturday afternoon, a memorial service is scheduled at Clement Park near the high school. CPR News will carry that live. You can tune in Saturday starting at 3 p.m. for our special coverage. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with Denver's Youth Poet Laureate putting words to what our community has experienced this week. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It can be hard to find the words to describe what Colorado has just gone through this week. Well, uh, these 20-year-old wounds reopen, and there's a community on edge. We ask Denver's Youth Poet Laureate Ayla Sullivan to reflect on these events. Hi, Ayla. Hi, Ryan. Um, Why don't you take it away with what, what you've written for us? Lately, I am concerned with sinews the strings of our bodies, and their own resonance. 
Violin strings, originally made from organic animal material, sing because of sinews. When two violins are beside each other, a note can be played by one string and the other violin hums to echo it in sympathy. It is the same song, the same grief in children from one school district to another and lockdowns across our state, whether they are hiding in science room corners or from increased police activity keeping them from the outside. Safety. Like our sinews, like strings, is as elastic as it is tightly wound, depending on the body, what is deemed worthy of protection. The first time I was ever in a lockdown, I was 11 years old. The second time I was in a lockdown, I was 15, in the same school district as Arapaho High School. We were a resonating note in 2013, the sound of grief and community and fear uniting us. I have never known Colorado without gun violence have grown up in education each year in the shadow of Columbine, but our state flower does not have to be a symbol of tragedy. It could be our growth, our dedication to the future of our children. Gun violence is not a new issue, should not only concern you because white children go to school too. It is the call to return to compassion in action. Gun violence is police brutality. It is entering a movie theater central to communities of color. Gun violence is America's favorite pastime, Colorado's inheritance on land where you can still smell the rust of blood from the Sand Creek Massacre. Commit yourself to the sound of all of us wailing. Commit your sympathy for more than just silence. The sensationalism of guns is a symptom of the obsession with violence, the rebrand of white terrorism, and the fragility of hypermasculinity. Our children do not deserve the negligence of not tending to the wound. Commit yourself to their healing or continue to commit yourself to the guilt. A lot of symbols there. The violin, for instance, which mm-hmm. I think is can be a particularly sad instrument, the sound of mm-hmm. which can be a soundtrack to grief. And it's so interesting when you, you talk about Columbine, of course, uh, being the high school, but also the state flower. And I know that there's been concern about that shorthand. You know, mm-hmm. Columbine just stands for all this violence. And yet, of course, it's a high school. It's a place that still mm-hmm. is attended by students today. And it's our state flower, as you know. You just whipped that up. Yeah, yesterday. <laughs> Um, uh, you noticed, uh, you noted in that poem that you have experienced lockdowns mm-hmm. and lockouts yourself. Yes. Um, I think it's something um, strange for me, too, the first lockdown I ever had because I was in private school education for the first eight years of, of my education. And um, being in a, a small school that's kind of tucked away, we never had to deal with lockdowns. So when I started attending Denver Public Schools, um, and being trained with that knowledge, it was just something so jarring to me that I didn't understand. Hmm. And having sisters who are now 11 and 13 who were not, you know, at school yesterday um, and my conversations with them, it, it's a strange place to realize that they're entering a world now that is only a, a precautionary and in a in a way that's not exactly useful i think it's it's not looking at the actual problem it's it's just saying oh we're gonna create you know more better locked doors or we're gonna create these systems that aren't actually treating the problem what sorts of news events tend to inspire you to write is it common that they do Mm, i think I am as interested as I am in history as I am in our future and and present day events. So um, 
being inspired to write often comes from the stories of my ancestors and how that relates to how we can be propelled forward today. Well, I think that's the perfect segue <laughs> to talk about your new play called Last Stop. Uh, it runs for one night only at Buntport Theater in Denver on Saturday. Mm-hmm. You wrote it, produced it, and you star. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a coming out story mm-hmm. from a non-binary, transgender, biracial person. Uh, so naturally, the question is, is this work, again, the play called Last Stop, is it autobiographical? Yeah, it's semi-autobiographical um, in the way that it is, you know, a, a culmination of a lot of stories about my family and stories about me. But the work is fiction and it is um I feel like I'm called as an artist to always represent truth in the most beautiful way, but not exactly put truth because it's the representation of truth that gets us to find solutions and ask the right questions rather than if I just put something real, then we're only experiencing voyeurism and not true art. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So where is this play set? Describe the surroundings. Yeah. So it is an immersive theater experience. It's solely set in a nail salon and we invite the audience. A nail salon? Yes. Tell Uh, tell me why that is. um, I grew up in a nail salon um, in my summers when I couldn't stay home alone with my um, great auntie and uh, my family. So it is kind of um, the perfect place for me to set a story that's immersive because I think a nail salon is a very performative space um, in the way that we we have to be a different self when we're in, in ceremony, really. That's what um, there's a ritual to getting your nails done and all those things. No. I also think of it mm-hmm. as a place where a lot of great conversation mm-hmm. happens. Definitely. Yeah. And so the notion of dialogue in a nail salon mm-hmm. seems easier to write, perhaps, in a setting. Yeah, like absolutely. But it, it's easier because we are performing our our histories for one another in a way that we wouldn't ever talk about it um, if we were in any other place. The play is set rather intentionally in 2008. Why mm-hmm. 2008? 2008, I, I wanted to choose a time where we we're just beginning to have language for for transness and uh, non-binary identities, but it wasn't quite clear to kind of mirror somebody coming out and, and knowing that they're in between. And also a time where we're we're striving for progression. We just had Obama come come in. It's it's kind of a nostalgic time, I think, for all of us right now. Um, and. And yet there was still a lot of racially charged issues. Um, The play also does deal with some gun violence as well um, and immigrant issues, um, being an immigrant and having PTSD. All of those very important topics, I think, coming in then are important rather than now. Okay, so 08 was a nostalgic time for you, Mm -hmm. you're saying. Uh, Can you explain non-binary when you use that word? Yeah, absolutely. Um, To me, non-binary is the closest word I can use to describe my gender identity in English because it's a a Vietnamese-specific identity about honoring all the ancestors that live inside me and why I don't feel attached to either uh, gender. But non-binary literally means removing your gender from the gender binary, that you're not... um, a cis male or, or a cis woman or even a trans male or a trans woman that you are outside of the binary experiencing both um, genders at the same time. You also experience two cultures at mm-hmm. the same time because you are biracial. Mm-hmm. And I wonder uh, if you might contrast for us 
how the Vietnamese culture views transness, as mm-hmm. you've called it, transness, uh, versus the, the African-American community, mm-hmm. which is also a part of you. I think it's, a, it's, it's kind of like going to two different parties. <laughs> you know, um, and and the way are they that both we, fun? They're both fun. Okay, it's just a different type of celebration. There's different food. There's a there's different joy. Um, I think uh, Vietnamese transness is very specific to um, ritual and 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 culture and family. Whereas I think being black and trans is something about look look at how long I have survived and I am so happy to share my life with you. It's a, it's it's a different kind of presence, so it's a different kind of party. Is it a different kind of acceptance mm. of transness? Do I, you find more acceptance in one over the other? I think, uh, I think when you're black and trans, that there is there's something there's something more um, there's there's definitely something more celebratory and something more um, accepting in the way of I see you as who you are, rather as uh, Vietnamese, it's a reclamation of acceptance because our ideas were colonized and we're returning back to to the foundation of, of Vietnamese of Vietnamese identity before the French told us that transness was wrong. Fascinating of the connections you draw. Thanks for being with mm-hmm. us. Thank you so much for having me. You can catch Last Stop at Denver's Buntport Theater for one night only, April twentieth. Denver's Youth Poet Laureate Ayla Sullivan wrote, produced and stars in it. Not all that long ago, some of the smartest people on Earth were unsure if black holes existed. Even Albert Einstein had his doubts. But last week, this announcement at the National Science Foundation changed everything. We are delighted to be able to report to you today that we have seen what we thought was unseeable. We have seen and taken a picture of a black hole. Here it is. Okay, let's discuss the significance of this image and what questions it raises going forward with Doug Duncan. He's astronomer at CU Boulder and joins us regularly to talk about space science. Welcome back, Doug. Thanks, Ryan. Under exciting circumstances, I guess a brief reminder, first off, what is a black hole? Sure. A black hole is a place in space where gravity has become so strong that nothing can escape and space itself is warped. You know, if you shoot a rocket up from the Earth, we have something called the escape velocity. It's 25,000 miles an hour. And you shoot a rocket faster than that, it never comes back. The escape, it defies gravity. Yeah, it, it, that's, it, 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 gravity can't stop it. Okay. In a black hole, the, at the event horizon around a black hole, the escape velocity is the speed of light. And since nothing can go that fast, nothing from inside the black hole can ever escape. No rocket would make it out. No, and not even a beam of light. Do you remember that time when black holes were just a far out idea? You know, I, I remember, don't mean to date you, but I, I, <laughs> I remember it very vividly because over 40 years ago, when I was a freshman at Caltech, this kind of wild looking guy with long hair and a, and a flowered shirt walked in to deliver a freshman lecture on black holes. His name was Kip Thorne. 
and he was a wild man even then. Since he's he's helped write the movie Interstellar. Oh, that's his hobby. But he really understands relativity as well as almost anybody. And he's, he was very wise. He said, you know, there's never going to be a day where we turn over a rock and say, oh, look, we found a black hole. He said, but 30 years from now, everyone will say, oh, yeah, of course, black holes are real. And he was right because we built up the circumstantial evidence about black holes. And now every astronomer knows that they're out there. And, and now we have a picture. Now we have this picture. And why is that so important? You know, uh, for one thing, it's very gratifying to have a direct evidence of a black hole. I mean, most people have never seen an atom. Okay, we all believe they exist. I know they exist. It, it, but it's kind of cool if you get direct evidence of something. And it is the part of space where space is supposed to be warped or distorted. So I think that by studying this picture, we're going to learn more about the nature of space itself. We should talk a bit about how this picture was captured. So the black hole, as I understand it, is called M87. It's That's a big galaxy where the black hole lives. Okay. It's in the center of this of, giant galaxy. Of that galaxy, uh-huh. which is 55 million light years away. Pretty far away. But w- this was not the black hole they set out to photograph, Doug. That's right. Our own galaxy has a black hole in the middle of it. And... Uh, Astronomers are still trying to take a picture of that. It turns out it's a little bit like being in a forest. You know, your own forest, it's hard to get the comprehensive view. Whereas if you look out uh, toward a galaxy far away, that's the first one they were able to image. But I think they're going to continue to try and get a picture of the black hole in our own galaxy. So it's just a question of its distance from us and sort of the view we get? Well, it's interesting. Uh, there's two kinds of black holes. Oh. Stars can make one kind of black hole and galaxies make another. Okay? So uh, the sun is not going to turn into a black hole when it dies. But stars that are more massive than the sun, say 10 times more massive than the sun, when they die, they explode in a supernova and they can leave behind a black hole. And the gravity wave detector, the LIGO experiment, uh, has actually found two stars that turned into black holes, binary star, and they were spiraling around each other. So that's a star-sized black hole. Our Milky Way galaxy has a million mass of the sun black hole, and the M87 galaxy has a billion times the mass of the sun black hole. So there's this supergiant black hole far away in M87, and we've been looking at that. And there's a pretty darn big, you know, million solar mass black hole in our own Milky Way. And I think we'll get a picture of that too. Okay. So I want to go to the idea of what sorts of technology might be able to capture an image like this. Uh, There there is work underway on, on just this thing. Sure. So it turns out the smaller the thing you want to look at an image, the bigger the telescope you should have, okay? So uh, not only do telescopes make things appear bigger, but they make the tiny details look sharper. So in order to see, a black hole is not very big. You know, this, this um, supermassive black hole 55 million light years away, it's tiny in the sky. Yeah. So you need a really big telescope to see the tiny details. And how big was the telescope? The telescope was the size of the Earth. 
Okay, now that's a pretty neat trick, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and probably listeners have not- not noticed a telescope in their backyard, so the telescope doesn't cover the whole Earth. But one of the cool things that I think radio astronomers first perfected is you can get more than one telescope working together. And it has a lot of the properties of one telescope as big as the separation between the two. So if listeners saw that great movie Contact, Carl Sagan helped write, there are those radio dishes out in New Mexico. There's more than a little over two dozen of them. And, you know, they kind of stand in a line, but they all work together. And that gives you some of the properties of one giant radio telescope. So that's how you have an Earth-sized telescope, is you have multiple telescopes working together on Earth. That's right. And it's quite a challenge because, you know, out in New Mexico, the telescopes are all connected. And so they're synchronized. They're coordinated. They work together. But you can't run a wire from, you know, the Antarctic to New Mexico to Hawaii to all the places these telescopes were. Uh So... They kind of pretend to work together. They all observe the same part of the sky. They have a super accurate atomic clock like we, you know, develop here in Boulder in Colorado. And then they record everything and the time. So they're looking in the same place and they know just the time of the data. Then they put all of this enormous amount of data, millions and billions of bytes of data on hard drives They FedEx them to one location. (laughs) FedEx is involved in this. Right? (laughs) And they combine all the data as if the telescopes were working together. together. And then that way they really do work together. Okay. More than 200 scientists worked on this project. And an important member of the team was a computer scientist. That's Katie Bauman. She was a grad student at MIT when she developed an algorithm that pieces together the right image from all the noise that's collected. Uh, Here she is in a 2017 TED Talk. And so my role in helping to take the first image of a black hole is to design algorithms that find the most reasonable image that also fits the telescope measurements. Just as a forensic sketch artist uses limited descriptions to piece together a picture using his knowledge of face structure, the imaging algorithms I develop use our limited telescope data to guide us to a picture that also looks like stuff in our universe. Help us understand that. In other words, when the FedEx, when it all came back, right. it's not as if you literally held together images and created a picture. Well, so this is the, the glory of the radio astronomers and the millimeter astronomers who take the observations with those dishes. And they say, what did the source look like? Just so happens I'm teaching our, uh, our advanced undergraduates a class right now at CU called data analysis. And this is exactly what we do, although none of us, including me, are as good as Katie. And so we try and match the data to the source, what did the, what did the picture of the source look like? Was it a donut? Was it tiny? Was it bigger? And the way radiation comes out of different sources uh, is different depending on what the source looks like. So you take the observations from 55 million light years away and you kind of build a computer model. You pretend uh, uh, different shapes and you see which one matches what you saw. Do you think that the team reflects the face of science today, that team with Katie on it? You know, I don't know all the, all the 200 people, but I know it, it takes a team. We just admitted new graduate students to study this kind of astronomy. It's 50% women 
at CU this year. So there will be more working on cool projects. And if you're listening out there, it's a very cool field. Don't be intimidated by science. Be sucked into it like a black hole. Like a black I knew you were going there. (laughs) Thanks for being with us, Doug. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Doug Duncan teaches astronomy at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he joins us regularly to talk about space science. In the 1970s, NASA scientists traveled to the Great Sand Dunes National Park. They tested equipment for the Viking Mars landers, thinking the dunes would be a good facsimile for the Martian surface. Now, the NASA-funded Colorado Space Grant Consortium heads back to the park each year for a student event that they call the Colorado Robotics Challenge. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce witnessed it. A four-wheeled robot about the size of a Tonka truck pivots aimlessly in the sand. Left, right. Its name is Tupperware Bot, and it looks confused. I walk out here and I see what looks like some remote control cars binking around, and I'm like, ah, big deal. But it's tough to get this to work. Well, they're not remote controlled. They're completely autonomous. You're supposed to either flip a switch or connect a a wire or something like that, and then it just kind of goes off and does its own thing. Chris O'Hare is with the Pikes Peak Community College team that built Tupperware Bot. They're teaching its brain, basically. That's Bernadette Garcia-Galvez. And I'm the associate director of the Colorado Space Grant Consortium. The consortium represents state colleges, universities, and other organizations, giving students a chance to work on real practical space-ish type projects, like here at the base of the sand dunes, where close to 30 teams are trying out their inventions. Picture a circle, maybe 40 feet across, divided into six wedges, each one offering a different course to the center. Courses that get tougher and tougher as they go along. Level one, open, flat sand, unobstructed all the way to the spinning beacon in the middle of the circle. Then for the higher level wedges... We dig holes in trenches. We put rocks in the way. Sometimes ramps or walls. And these autonomous robots of all different shapes with student programmed brains bump (laughs) and climb and dodge their way forward. It's not a competition, so each team gets to define success for themselves. Success is believing in yourself, believing in your robots, supporting your team, problem solving, and just trying your best and having a good time. 14-year-old Tammy Lee looks to her supervisor. Did she tell you to say that? No. (laughs) (laughs) That came from your heart. Oh, my word. It sounds so wholesome. What are you hoping the robots do? Um, We hope that they move. She's exaggerating a little bit, though Supervisor Fung Fan says when Lee's team first came two years ago, that was the benchmark proudly. By the end of the day, they got it to move an inch, and they celebrated that. This time, their robot country boy does move. He's trying his best. But he just spins in a circle. 
the wheels were both going different directions, and we wanted it to go straight, but that's not working out. So we have to code it again. And with that, the team picks up Country Boy and runs back up the sandy hill to the parking lot and their computers. They come from an after-school program in Denver called The Bridge Project. Four young minority women, all children of immigrants or refugees living in low-income neighborhoods. Just to be outside of this inner city, that's an amazing adventure for them. Back on the circle, one translucent yellow bot is just ticking off course after course. The team from Trinidad State Junior College is actually made of all high school students. Tony Arendt explains the acronym behind their robot's name, Griffin. Okay, I'm always really bad at these, so it's a Golden Roaming Intelligent uh, Fantabulous. That's a Scrabble word, so it's technically a real word. Fabricated Independent uh, Navigator. Watching this team through the day is a master class. Complete one course, move to the next, fail. We need to hit it and let go. Pull Griffin aside, tape this, tweak that. We've had issues going over larger ramps before. Undeterred, David Hadaway and the team make final adjustments and point Griffin toward the plywood ramp that has so far stumped the bot. We've made it through every other course and might as well try for the goal. And Griffin is off toward the ramp. In the closing minutes of the robotics challenge, it hits the ramp, stops on it, then moves back and forth and back and forth and repeats that until it just topples the ramp. Its purpose is destruction. And then moves around the wreckage to reach the beacon. On Mars, robots do what they have to. From Great Sand Dunes National Park, Dan Boyce. CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, our executive producer is Carl Bielek. I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. This is CPR News.